Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. In this episode, Bob Barnett spoke on the topic of the Orthodox-Hicksite split and its significance to Quaker history on Sunday, June 17, 2018 at Mount Holly Friends Meeting House. Bob is a member of Atlantic City Area Meeting and has studied the history of Quakers in West Jersey extensively. His most recent publication appeared in Sojourn, the Journal of Stockton University's South Jersey Culture and History Center. So Bob Barnett here is not a historian by trade, but he is um, a very accomplished in the in the tools of the historian's trade, and he hangs out with with people who uh, really are historians by trade. And I was reminded of that a short while ago when he invited me to come to a meeting of the Camden County Historical Society where um, I was to talk about what we were doing at Burlington and, and, um, and why that was important. And I felt that I should start by um, giving a brief synopsis of the significance of Burlington, why it was historically important, and Bob interrupted me and said, you don't have to do that, Bill. These people wrote that book. Uh, and it's, they literally had. So I, uh, some of us attended um, uh, uh, last year uh, 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 an affair at the, uh, in Galloway at the Atlantic City area meeting, um, dedicating a, an old meeting house which they had restored. And um, there was um, a, a brief talk, and, and Bob was part of that. And purely on, uh, on a tangential note, uh, began talking a little bit about the, the Hicksite Orthodox schism. And for me, it was one of those, wait, what, moments? Because what he was talking about was not what I had ever known. And so I th we're really happy to have this opportunity to have Bob come in and elaborate on that theme. Uh, I'm looking forward to it very much, but uh, with, the, um, with the full knowledge that he may be um, talking to people here who have written that book, um, I, um, I'd like to introduce Bob. And, and I just, uh, one other, just, it, it, it's possible that you'll be more interested in, in the fact that he's moving to Canada and how does one go about doing that than you are in the Orthodox Six-Side speech, but that's, um, that's for you all to figure out. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, by way of further introduction, just want to mention uh, that I grew up in Willingboro and my parents are buried at the top of Mount Holly, so I'll be going there for my Father's Day visit this afternoon. Um, but uh, we moved down to, after I was in school in Philadelphia, we moved down to Atlantic County and I worked for the Federal Aviation Administration. So the first meeting I went to was Atlantic City area, which is in Haddonfield Quarter. Uh, 
and um, we've been there for 30 years, as as Bill mentioned. We're uh, we're heading out to to Canada soon, but uh, as I got involved in Atlantic City Area Friends meeting and started to dig into history, which is something I had really neglected through my engineering curriculum at Drexel. Uh, I started to realize what a special place Burlington is, Burlington um, and South Jersey in general, how different it is, especially from North Jersey, you know, our, our partners up there. So uh, even though I grew up in Willingboro, stones throw from the Woolman family homes, uh, I didn't have much knowledge about Quakerism and about the history of this area, that it was a, a Quaker colony that was separate from the Quaker or the colony of East Jersey for about uh, almost 30 years. It, its capital was Burlington, the capital of East Jersey was Perth Amboy, and that that continued uh, in a sense after they were merged into uh, a reunited New Jersey in 1702, for the rest of the colonial period, it was the government of New Jersey was divided into an East Division and a West Division. So those, those tribal identities, most of East Jersey was Calvinist, and most of West Jersey was Quaker, uh, at least in the controlling uh, institutions in the, in the beginning. Um, so they really didn't get along that well, and we're still at this day having one state with two identities. So that's uh, something that I, dug into for research and uh, ended up uh, writing a, a lengthy article in 2016 called Bipolar State that talks about the differences between the two halves of New Jersey and why that was and why it's still, still the case. Um, but today, to trying to focus on the 1827 split, uh, Bill had said earlier that it's something we don't know enough about, so I'll give you a, a, a spoiler. Don't do it. Splitting, <laughs> splitting was a really bad thing. Um, and uh, there are kind of two aspects to the split. There was one that was doctrinal. There were uh, doctrines that one side had uh, was continuing to try to adopt, and the other side didn't want to. Uh, but there was also the sociological uh, split between the urban areas that were getting more educated, uh, wealthier, and when you had uh, educated, wealthy people kind of in control of those institutions, they, they spent more time thinking about theology, uh, elaborating it and saying this, this is what Quakers believe. And that started to become a tool whereby people who controlled what happened could say, well, this person is kind of outside our, spider, outside our sphere because they're not doctrinally sound, because they won't assent to these, these particular, uh, particular doctrinal points. So that's, that's part of what happened where the, the doctrinal division was used for what was essentially a rural-urban split. Uh, 
between where the meetings were. So uh, the, the rural meetings that were not as educated and focused more on the inner light as sufficient, uh, they very much did not want to be pinned down to these doctrinal tests that some of the, uh, the folks in the, uh, the wealthier suburban or urban meetings were, uh, were pushing. So it's called Orthodox and Hicksite, the split. And the Orthodox called themselves Orthodox. The Hicksites did not call themselves Hicksites. Uh, that was a name that was applied to them by the Orthodox. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about why. But Orthodox means right belief. And with right belief come a set of doctrinal points that define what, what is right belief. And it's very complex and not easy to say what all of those were because it was, it was complex. Now, let me put, Bill, if you could get this out to everybody, holding a microphone and doing that at the same time. What I'm passing out is a, a fairly elegant diagram that shows uh, the, the strand of Quakerism dividing in 1827 into Orthodox and Hicksite. And then th what you'll see is that the Orthodox side goes through more and more splits. Uh, so the, the Orthodox side splits into a Gurneyite and a Wilburite branch. And then the Gurneyite splits some more. So there are uh, so that diagram is on the elegant side. This diagram, which is the work of a guy named Jeffrey Kaiser, um, and he's, he's refined it over the years. This is the 2011 version that he did for the 350th. This is every yearly meeting, and all of it splits into other yearly meetings. So uh, who here knows the, the phrase, theology divides but service unites? You, who all heard that? Show of hands. Is that new to a lot of people? Apparently it is. Theology divides, service unites. If you look on the net, it's attributed to Margaret Fell. I don't think that that's accurate. It sounds very much more like something that was said probably in the early 20th century as institutions like AFSC and other consultation committees among friends worked to heal the split. So you'll see on your elegant diagram that uh, the, the two sides, um, Hicksite and, and Orthodox, they, they reemerge in a reunification uh, it's funny, uh, that, that's under the, the Friends General Conference uh, rubric. Uh, that's not a perfect diagram. It, it doesn't have uh, a lot of the dirty details about, about the splits, but it is a good general guide to the, the map of the different Quaker meetings in the US or in, in America's today. Um, for the gritty details, you go here. Uh, but the, um, The split itself, why was it called Hicksite? Elias Hicks was from <clears throat> Long Island, and he was 
a campaigner for a return to some of the historic testimonies that had been defining Quakerism for most of the 1700s. What happened along with wealth and education in, in Philadelphia uh, and other major urban centers is that the wealthy would mix with the wealthy. And so a lot of ways in which Quakers had been sort of separate from the world and distinct in their ways of doing things, how they spoke, how they dressed. Um, and in fact, I should back up a little and talk about the periods of Quakerism that have been defined by, by uh, Quaker scholars like Rufus Jones and William Braithwaite. Um, and Al asked about George Fox. So George Fox is the guy who did more for coalescing Quakers into a community, developing a system of monthly and quarterly meetings. But the period when he, when he was active, he was very evangelistic himself. And he was going to other communities and sort of barging in and saying where they were in error and why the, the, the ways they were developing as a Quaker community were superior. So he was an in-your-face Quaker, and there were a lot of them. Uh, there's a group called the Valiant 60, uh, these various ministers that went out to preach the Quaker gospel around England. So it was, they call this the first period of Quakerism, where it was in a very evangelical formation stage. It was called a movement sometimes. Once and, and part of that movement was fighting against persecution against the, the, the sects that were not either uh, uh, Puritan or uh, High Church of England. There had been a civil war in England and they'd come to an agreement to restore the monarchy, but there were still these outside sects that were persecuted and thrown into jail and you still had to be part of the Anglican church to be, um, you had to pay taxes to support the ministers there and that sort of thing. So when, when Quakers would not adhere to those, those requirements, they would end up in jail. So it was in the face of this persecution that they, they were fighting back, they were writing petitions, they were ministering in the streets as they, as they could. Once a measure of toleration for dissenting sects had, had entered in, there's kind of a period that's called uh, the second period of Quakerism, which is quietism, where friends kind of withdrew from the world and they said, well, the world has its ways, but we have ours. And we're going to, in a sense, I'll use the term police because it sometimes felt like that. We're going to police ourselves as a community to become the pure community of God that we know we should be. So they, they would enforce their discipline of plain speech, of plain clothes, uh, cl clothing, uh, of not marrying out of the meeting. And if you violated these, uh, these disciplines, you would face uh, testimonies against you. And if you acknowledged your error and said, I, I'm penitent, the beating is right, I am wrong, you would kind of be accepted back into the fold. That was kind of the way it worked. So it was the authority of those enforcing the discipline that, that kept that community tight. But 
it was, it was at a cost. It's sometimes called the purity purges of the 1700s. A lot of people read out of meeting because they married the wrong person because they uh, were wanton in their ways and were singing or dancing, and they didn't uh, uh, acknowledge their error to the meeting, so they were disowned. So you had, uh, through the 1700s, this close community trying not to mix with the world, trying to enforce its own. And now, another part of that was the testimony against slavery. So John Woolman and others were, were saying, uh, we shouldn't be holding slaves, and he worked hard to, to fight that, and it was ultimately successful in 1776. Uh, it was a disownable offense now to hold people enslaved. And Woolman, uh, not content with that, so he's saying we shouldn't even be using the products that are produced by slave labor in uh, the West Indies, dyes and... and um, uh, other other uh, products, so that wasn't a minority position up until the 1750s. Then it became a majority position. Then it became universal uh, with with uh, 1776 regarding slavery, the trade question and trade goods that continued to plague friends. So, what happens after our American Revolution and the stability uh, and that the Quakers had and the growth of Quaker businesses after the revolution is that you have wealthier and wealthier Quakers and they're mixing with their wealthy associates and they're uh, having things like the plank against uh, slave produced products taken out of the discipline that happened in New York and um, also just becoming more, associating more with evangelicals that were of their class within the cities. Whereas um, the, um, the movement against holding people enslaved in the 1700s was within the Quaker community. You started getting wealthy abolitionist Quakers in the late, uh, late 1700s, now participating in abolition societies. And the leaderships of the different yearly meetings were not always on board with that kind of activity, that abolitionist activity was engaging the world, not our own community, but going out in the world and, and doing things that, that were raising uh, conflict you know, and, and, uh, and approbation. So Quaker troublemakers, you know, so the, the, the leaderships tended to be more conservative. So Elias Hicks came to Philadelphia and he preached against these, these uh, drifts away from the good discipline that the, the meetings had uh, developed over the 1700s. And he was saying that, you know, Wealth is running us too much, uh, ostentation and, and fancy dress, um, mixing with the world in ways that were not part of our discipline. So in a sense, he thought of himself as a reformer. And up until that point, if you look at uh, the, the books of discipline that developed, 
they really only talked about behavior. There was, a, there was one chapter in the Uniform Discipline of around 1806 that said that the scriptures are valuable and the ch children should be taught the scriptures. But there weren't doctrinal points in our Book of Discipline. So we had the practice. We didn't have the faith part. Um, and what was happening outside the Quaker community at that time too is that after, the, after our new country was developed with things like a First Amendment, abridging uh, the right of the government to make laws regarding religion, um, there was, uh, and, and also in a sense, the, the, the fruits of the Enlightenment, you had, um, you had um, the concept of God as having established the world with its rules of nature, its laws of physics, its laws of, of biology, um, and letting it, letting it be. It called, was called deism, the idea that God is remote. It's not so much a personal God. It's, it's um, and I'm not talking about in the Quaker community because they, they always had that inner light and seeking God's will within. But I'm saying that in the world uh, around the Quakers, there was more and more enlightenment thinking and more and more less religious thinking. But then there was a huge reaction to that in the, in the culture at large of evangelism. So you had a, the Second Great Awakening with a lot of, uh, of, um, of uh, revivals and, uh, and Bible societies and missionary activity that, uh, that was trying to um, correct what they saw as an imbalance. That no, there is a personal God, there is personal salvation, and, and Quakers, because of their worldly associations, got swept up in this, and they were in the cities participating in the Bible societies and starting to feel that, uh, you know, we, we, we need to sign on with these doctrinal statements that are coming out. So you had, uh, got to, excuse me while I go behind the curtain here. So Elias Hicks was not making any friends. These are not to hand out, I didn't make multiple copies of these things, but um, one that I wanted to point out was, we can just pass this around for you to look at. It's called Extracts Concerning the Divinity of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And meeting for sufferings held in Philadelphia in 1823. Just pass that around so you can leaf through it and you can see that it's, it's just heavy on doctrine. It says it's extracts from the uh, writings of early friends, but it doesn't particularly have footnotes saying this came from George Fox, this came from Barclay. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a pretty heavy theological, you know, if you think about creeds, which we had resisted, uh, the, the mainline churches had the Apostles' Creed, 
I believe in one God, the Father, omnipotent, and uh, uh, Jesus, his Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and the resurrection, and the coming again, and the judging of the, of the, uh, the good and the evil. And if you look at that, it's only about 21 theological points in the Apostles' Creed. But the document here has a lot more than 21 points. And what happened as Quakerism continued to split and they continued to refine their doctrinal statements, you get to something in the 1880s called the Richmond Declaration. Oh. <laughs> Worst document ever printed. That it, it's just, there's, there's hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of doctrinal points. And it start, started in Richmond, Indiana, and it caused, um, you know, this is, this is the big 1827 split here. Uh, I believe this is the 1880s. Um, I'm sorry, where are we? Yeah. Up in here. Uh, anyway, it's, um, I just got this this weekend. I've always wanted to have my own Jeffrey Kaiser chart. I finally got one. So. So I haven't studied, but it's full of dense information about each of these splits and, and all the, we have up to, graph, uh, up to graphites and uh, benites. Uh, so it's all explained in there. But um, if you look at those, as I said, that, that they're, they're very heavily, and, and what, all that comes across to me when I read this is theology divides and service unites. And that was, when a lot of this had spent and we get to the 1900s, the younger generations who hadn't been through these bitter splits, um, they, uh, they wanted to work together with other Quakers and they wanted to move toward a reconciliation. And, uh, you know, I've told you there's a hundred of, uh, of uh, doctrinal points that you'll find described here. But one interesting thing, if you want to try to summarize it, there's, there's uh, an event that happened in Crosswick's meeting which bubbled up into the state government involvement. Um, there was a, uh, before the split, there had been a fund raised for uh, education. You know, you're nodding, you know about this. Okay. So it's, um, it's my stack of books sitting over here. And this is gonna be hard because I, I, I don't like microphones because they, they tie up one of your hands. But um, this book is uh, an, an exulting document about the Society of Friends Vindicated. This is from 1832. So this is fairly close to the time of the split. The, um, so they had this, this trust fund for educational purposes. And I'm not sure if it was, it was uh, there was also a building, but a, somebody makes a loan from this trust fund, and then the split happens. So he owes the money back to the trust fund, but now the people in control of the property are uh, not the people he borrowed the money from. So, so he's, he's reluctant to pay, because maybe it was the wrong side of where he stood theologically. Um, but I, I didn't mention that in, in terms of the Orthodox and Hicksite split, 
London Yearly Meeting sided with the Orthodox uh, and did not recognize the Hicksites as the, a legitimate meeting. There had been a growth of evangelism in, in London as well, and so they, they, they chose sides and they chose the Orthodox side. And when it went up through the courts in New Jersey having to do with this, this lawsuit, um, the courts tried to look at all the, the, the claims of the Hicksite and the Orthodox saying, we're the, we're the true Quakers, we're the original Quakers. We, look, we've got this quote from George Fox that supports us and this quote from Barclay and the other side would say, well, we have three Barclays, you're two. And uh, so they, they, but the courts were convinced as London Yearly Meeting had been that the Orthodox was the legitimate heir of Quakerism. And I just want to read this part because it, it boils down the doctrinal differences that they were talking about in 1832. He says, um, three religious, three points. Sorry, I did not want to mark in this document from 1832, so I didn't write in the margins. Okay. He being Stacy DeCow, I think, or Joseph Hendrickson. He stated that there were three prominent points of doctrine on which they differed. That the ancient society of friends believed in the divinity of the Savior, the atonement, and in the inspiration and unerring truth and certainty of the Holy Scriptures, which tenets were still held by the Orthodox party and are and always have been deemed fundamental. But that the Hicksite party rejected these doctrines. And in the answer, says, um, this was Stacy DeCow answering. On the contrary, he said they had no creed and every individual member might believe in regard to them as he pleased. He refused to disclose his religious sentiments or those of his party, alleging that he was not bound to disclose them before a temporal tribunal. He contended that the Religious Society of Friends was a pure democracy, acknowledging no head but Christ the great head of the Christian church, and that they did not consider Elias Hicks as their leader. So Elias Hicks is somebody who had gone on record as saying that the scriptures have a lot of contradictions in them and that they are, they are uh, not the primary source. The light within is the primary source for inspiration. Um, and he could find all the quotes in George Fox and Barclay he needed to support that. Um, but, um, but those weren't, those weren't his main campaigning points in terms of, he didn't come and preach about that. He preached about drifting away from the, the pure discipline that had developed in the 1700s that he wanted the Society of Friends to get back to. 
But because he was on record uh, as opposing some of these simple doctrinal points, that was used against him as, as, as a heretic. Um, and one of the things I've, I've realized over the years is I've had uh, people try to save me um, is that as, as annoying as it can be, it, it, can be, it can feel insulting that someone's telling you, you can't manage your own spirituality, you have to, you have to listen to me and, and, and do it this way. Um, it can feel, uh, uh, well, insulting and annoying. But generally, I do pick up that the person trying to convince me of their way being better than my way is concerned about my soul. In their schema, I'm headed for a fiery eternity. And they want to save me from that. And if they didn't care, they wouldn't go to this effort. So I try to put that frame of mind saying, this is somebody in their schema, they really want to help me. So I'm loving kindness. <laughs> but I'm just trying to understand that it's, it's, it's something I, I should be a little tolerant of. Uh, because they feel if they don't, they're not being true to their God. They're, they're really, they're, they're letting their friend fall to perdition. So anyway, why do I say that? I say that because when Hicks gets branded as this heretic, people who are strong on these few doctrinal points that they feel Hicks is trying to push, even though he wasn't, that was, those, were, those were not his messages, but because he gets labeled with that, they see him as a real enemy. They see him as a threat to their children's salvation. You know, so you think about that. So when we think about the Hicksite split and you hear stories from those days about, well, the Hicksites are walking down the street here, so the Orthodox moved to the other side of the street because we can't even talk to those people. You know? that, that kind of bitterness that grew up in small towns that now had two meeting houses, um, that's what that was about, I think. That, that, that it, was, it was strong worry about where their own community was headed and that this was a real threat. So in terms of, we look at it now and say, how could you split a meeting over these doctrinal points when we're, 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 we're so accepting now? But in those mindsets, it was, it was really something. The, um, the other thing um, is that generally, as I said, it was the wealthy urban uh, Quaker communities that were orthodox and the rural, less educated, uh, poorer communities that were more um, uh, inner light is, is sufficient. Um, that's not a 100% general rule. You can, you can take that generalization too far, but, but, it, but it does apply largely in, in, um, in the Philadelphia area and a few other areas. But when I've talked to, to other, other uh, groups, they say, no, that, that, that doesn't quite match the demographic characteristics of our Rickside Orthodox split. Uh, so anyway, let me open it for questions. Did I cover uh, um, any? Bill, you said that I had said things in the, uh, uh, it was in our 1828 Orthodox meeting house that's on our property that came from Salem, um, uh, Woodstown area. 
Woodstown was a rural area. They were majority Hicksites, so the Orthodox had to build a small uh, 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 meeting house. And that meeting house, after winning disuse, came to the East Coast and is on our property now behind our more modern building. Whoop, whoop. Um, all right, you win. Um, so, questions? Thank you for listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought-provoking. If you have questions or comments or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at salemquarter.net.